Welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Stories of Determination. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani Fossbinder. Like in nature, we see determined flowers and vines clinging to life and seeking light. So are Morning Glory people. And in this podcast, I'll interview writers, activists, artists, entrepreneurs, survivors, and thrivers, and trailblazers of all kinds. These are folks that have been determined to get over, under, around, and through the obstacles that face them, or to seize the opportunities that come before them. I find these people inspiring and amazing. I know you will too. It's my pleasure today to welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Linda Morrow. In 1966, the Beatles and Leave it to Beaver reigned, and the Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Movement, rage. Feminism is barely a whisper, and Linda Morrow's first baby is diagnosed with Down syndrome. Despite what was the norm of the time, Linda refused to institutionalize her son, determined to raise Steve at home. For two more sons who follow, and her husband, Linda tried to fulfill cultural norms as a homemaker, as a woman whose voice is seldom heard or valued, but it isn't her nature to be meek. (laughs) Disability rights didn't even exist yet, and the idea that Steve could ever have a job or live independently were not even part of the imagination. Pioneering what's now called inclusion, Linda followed her heart to help Steve develop to his fullest potential. As she advocates for her son, Linda also learns to advocate for herself. As she pursued her career in public education, she unexpectedly fell in love with a woman and had to dig deep to accept her own identity before she's ready to meet her true soulmate. In her memoir, Heart of This Family, Linda chronicles her son's remarkable 49 years, sharing the innocent wisdom that he had to share. And in Steve's unbreakable spirit, Linda Morrow found her own. So Linda, thank you for coming to the Morning Glory Project today. I'm so glad to talk with you. I'm so honored to be part of your project. I mean, I've listened to so many of the podcasts and I can't believe that I'm in the same company, but thank you very Mm much. Oh, well, I'm blessed to have you. So Linda, you know, it's hard to, to think of this today because we have so much education around disabilities and around Down syndrome, around those things, and even also about sexuality, that to turn back the clock, can you tell me a bit about Steve's birth and what occurred that day and and then the weeks following? Sure. Um, so I think his birth was pretty unremarkable, although it would certainly seem strange to anybody giving birth today. But back then, uh, you know, your husband left you in the waiting room and you were put in a cubicle to labor on your own. And I just remember thinking, I don't want to be another one of those screaming women. And so I tried not to make much noise. Hmm. uh, The labor wasn't particularly long for a first labor. And Steve was born and... um, I remember they uh, said he looked a little blue and they put him in a bassinet and had some oxygen, not clamped to his face, but just a tube going into the bassinet. And uh, they cleaned him up and took him away. And that's pretty much the way things were done. Mm. I didn't see him for quite a while, but that again wasn't 
any different than the birth of my other two kids. And I had said that I wanted to nurse. And the first time the nurse brought him to me, she kept clicking her fingernails on the soles of her feet and saying, he's a very sleepy baby. He just won't wake up. And I thought that was so cruel. And Mm. I tried to nurse him, didn't have much luck, tried a few more times. And then basically the, the nurse said, well, why don't you just give him a bottle? That'll be easier. So I did. And uh, four days later, we took him home. And I thought I had a perfect, perfect baby, perfect son. Couldn't believe that there was this beautiful baby and it was ours. <laughs> mm. And then how did you learn of his condition? So, so you left the hospital with no idea that he had Down syndrome or that there was anything wrong with him other than that he had at first been a sleepy baby that didn't want a nurse. Right. I absolutely no idea. And uh, when uh, she was about two weeks old, uh, my husband said he'd gotten a phone call from the uh, pediatrician asking him to come down and visit him in his office because he had not met him in the hospital. And so I said, yeah, why don't you do that? That sounds like a good idea. And he did. And I remember him. He came back that night and picked up Steve and just burst into tears. And I said, what's the matter? And he said, oh, I'm just so happy that we have this baby. Hmm. And I said, great. And weeks went by. Uh, he, he wasn't scheduled for a well baby checkup until he was probably about, oh, eight or nine weeks old. And... During that time, uh, my husband, Roger, was supposed to go back to, uh, we were living outside of Boston at the time, but he'd finished his PhD at Syracuse University, and he was going back there to defend his thesis. I wanted to go with him and show off the baby and be there to support him. And he said, no, 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 Steve's too young. I don't want him catching any germs. So I said, okay. The night before the, uh, we had the appointment with the, with the, pediatrician for his first well baby checkup, I had seen that there was a there was going to be a documentary on TV about um, Bridgewater State Hospital, which was a state hospital for what they called mentally mentally defective individuals. The terms they used back then, right? Right. And I uh, I love documentaries, so I said, Oh, I'm gonna watch this and Roger, said, no, 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 no. I want to watch and it was some innocuous program and I I said, really? He said, yep. And he switched the channel. And I said, okay. So we went off to the uh, appointment the next day. And he, Raj wanted to come with me. And again, that seemed well within the norm. And the doctor examined Steve and then said, okay, get him dressed. And we'll uh, talk in my office. So I dressed the baby and started to pick him up to walk into the doctor's office. And Raj said, no, let me hold him. We walked in and I sat down in a chair facing the doctor and Raj holding Steve was sitting behind me. And the doctor looked up at me and said, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but your baby's a little mongoloid idiot. A mongoloid idiot. That was the term. That was the term. Although, strangely enough, I knew what he was referring to. And I knew that wasn't the right term. And I don't know how I knew that. But I looked at him and I said, you know, how do you know? And he started reciting all of these supposed signs. And um, 
And then I just looked at him again. I said, what did you call my son? And then he said, well, some people call this Down syndrome. And I knew that term. And I knew that referring to to children with Down syndrome as mongoloids or mongoloid idiots was no longer appropriate. But somehow he thought it was okay to use that. Mm. So I turned around and looked at Raj and he said, oh, your husband already knows. I told him when he came to see me when the baby was two weeks old, but I told him not to tell you because you wouldn't be strong enough so soon after giving birth to handle something like that. Mm. Um, I was just furious. <laughs> well, and, and uh, imagine, and, and also it explains why Steve couldn't tolerate watching that documentary. Why Roger couldn't, yeah. Excuse me, well, Roger was yeah, right. unable to do that. And, right. So you, you got furious. Furious because you hadn't been told? Furious because? I just, I couldn't understand. I mostly was upset with my husband, with Roger. And I didn't, I just said, we need to leave. And we left. And then when we got home, I just exploded and, and, and said, I don't understand. We've been married at that point for four years. Uh, the doctor had met each of us once, didn't really know us at all. I said, how could you follow the doctor's orders and not tell me? And I mean, he really didn't have a much of an explanation other than, well, that's what he told me to do. And and here they were kind of under the guise, of course, of, I mean, of protecting you. You were too fragile after giving birth to handle such difficult information or because you were female and they didn't think you were strong enough or. Well, I think both, but clearly the doctor had never given birth. So he didn't know how hard it was to do that. <laughs> no. No. Um, but I mean, you, Raj, Raj was a brilliant guy. I mean, he had his PhD in sociology. He was always affiliated with medical schools. But, you know, back then, doctors really were on pedestals, and uh, they were revered. They could do no wrong. And, of course, they were mostly all male as well. So, Well, and, and we, those of that era and subsequent eras, were taught to revere the doctor, not question anything that was said, right? Exactly. Exactly. So Raj was not so different than than a lot of people might be in that circumstance. He just followed the orders. Right, right. I mean, I it definitely caused a chink in our relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I just never really fully trusted him after that. Because he would side with the doctor and not, and not know that you were strong enough to handle such a thing? Yeah, because he hadn't told me. I really, I, I never really was able to fully grasp why, why he... he couldn't tell me. And it sounds like it, it felt like a betrayal to you. It did. And I mean, I, I look back, you know, from the wisdom of being much, much older now. And Raj is a very, uh, very stoic guy. He, he didn't really have highs or lows. He just was kind of middle of the road. And, um, I honestly don't think he probably gave it much thought. Once the doctor said, don't tell her, he probably thought, okay, I won't, and then just sort of went along with his life. Hmm. So then here you are with this child, and, and as I read in your bio, the, the norm of that time 
was not to try to raise a child like this at home. Today, by today's standards, it's different. But but then it was the standard was what to to send him away right away or yeah i mean the doctor said that he said that same day he said he said my advice to you is you can take him home and do the best you can or you can put him in an institution and then he followed that up by saying but i must tell you that children like this seldom outlive their teens uh so we decided that day that we brought him home, we were going to raise him. He was not going to go in an institution. And both Raj and I knew enough about uh, what went on at the Bridgewater State Hospital. The fact that we hadn't watched the documentary really didn't have anything to do with it. We know we knew what that was like. Uh, so uh, we knew we were going to raise him at home. So you set about to raising this boy and you had two sons after that. Right. So here you are a mom in a, in a fairly traditional arrangement. Yep. Uh, raising three boys, one of whom has special needs as they, as we would say today in our today's vernacular. And we'll see if uh, the generation following us finds a better one, but for now that's what we have. Yep. What was that like for you? It doesn't sound like there would be the kind of resources available. You couldn't, you certainly couldn't go on, Facebook and find a chat room for people who are parents of Down syndrome kids or anything like that. What what was that period of like a time like for you? It was awful. I mean, I I pleaded with people. He was followed by um, uh, Boston Children's Floating Hospital is the name of the hospital because it used to actually be on a ship. It wasn't then, but um, but they had a birth defects clinic, and uh, I asked people there, "Do you have anything on Down syndrome?" No, they didn't. Hmm. The only thing, the only resource that we had, and this actually isn't in the book, got left on the cutting floor, but there was a residential school for kids with special needs called St. Coletta's, and that was in Hanover, Mass. It was the next town over from where we were living, and we made an appointment, Roger and I, to go visit the school, and we spent probably three hours there, and that was the first time that either of us could ever remember seeing anybody with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. And it was run by the nuns, by the Catholic Church. Um, we saw kids in classrooms. We saw them. They could talk. They could, they could walk. They could talk. They could learn. Uh, it gave me tremendous hope. I mean, that, mm -hmm. that was the vision I kept in my head for such a long time, knowing that he could do these things. And isn't it, isn't it interesting that you, you needed to see that to get your vision clear. Mm -hmm. You needed to actually see that. Yeah, I, I really did. Um, but as far as having, raising Steve along with his brothers, I had three kids under the age of four, um, all boys. Which is, which is a mouthful anyway. Gee whiz. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was just, I don't think I treated C very differently. I didn't. I, I didn't have the time to treat him any differently. I mean, he was just part of the the gang. But I did <laughs> have um, a high school classmate who had married. Had she had three children? Her kids were a little bit older than mine. And Jane and I had been babies when our parents, our mothers, met. So I've been Jane and I have been friends for almost eighty years now. And Jane was 
was my guide. She was my soulmate. She was the one that convinced me that I could be a good mother to this little boy and that he could do anything. And Mm. uh, she was right. (laughs) Well, so tell me a bit about Steve. Now, for for listeners, I I met Linda in a very chance way, if you believe in chance, which I'm not sure I do. But I I met Linda in an unexpected way just after a writer's conference, met her at at a place that we were having lunch at on the way out of town. And I met her and, 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 and other friends as well. And she told me a bit about Steve. So I'd love for you to tell us a bit about him. Okay. Well, and how he grew and how he, what he became. Steve was amazing. And I think that I often used to wonder, it's such an amazing sense of humor. And I would often think to myself, wow, I wonder what he would be like. What would his personality be like if he didn't have Down syndrome? Um, Because people were drawn to him like a magnet. And it was just, that was always the way he was. Um, What, What do you think drew people to him? He was funny. He was incredibly funny. And as he got older, he would develop various sayings. Um, So his middle brother, Mike, took him to Disney World when they were probably both in their early 20s. And uh, Mike talks about how one day they were chasing down some characters that Steve was infatuated with and he wanted to get their autographs and so forth. And Mike had a splitting headache and he was getting kind of grumpy. And Steve finally looked at him and said, Mike, you're not being very Disney. (laughs) And so that saying, well, that's not very Disney became, you know, an inside catchphrase in your house, in our family. If somebody was being grumpy, we would just tell them, well, you're not being very Disney. Although grumpy is a Disney character in fairness, but that's another (laughs) matter altogether. (laughs) So what, what were the dark times for you? What was hard? Um, I think one cloud that hung over my head for a long time was the phrase that the doctor had used that children like this seldom outlive their teens. And I had a younger sister who um, died of lupus when she was 21 and I was 23. And I saw what that did to my parents and how horrible it was for them to, to you lose a child. at a relatively early age. And I just, I lived in fear of the fact that that doc that the doctor's prophecy was going to come true. So I fought for Steve to get an appropriate education, which in its own right wasn't easy. Well, there there wasn't things like mainstreaming then or special ed or any of that kind of stuff, right? Depending on where you were, kids either some kids weren't even allowed to go to school. Uh, Steve did not go to school with his brothers until he was 10 years old. He went to a separate, quote, but equal school. So it was like civil rights. He was segregated. But the thing that the cloud that was always following me was he's not going to outlive his teens. He's just not going to make it. Mm -hmm. And so I prepared him for getting his education, but I never thought much further beyond it because I really did not expect him to be an adult, to become an adult. And yet he did. He did. And, uh, that 
came with its own set of challenges. And I think, I think, I look back on it, it was easier for me to raise Steve as a kid than it was to have him as an adult. When he was a kid, he was, he was still cute, you know? I mean, he was just right. a kid. And yet, as an adult, there were some things about him that, that weren't so cute. And, uh, like, like, give me an example. Well, he, there was such a disconnect between him. Sometimes he could be very mature and, you know, want to go out to dinner and enjoy a good meal or go to a movie or go bowling or whatever. And then there were other times if I went into a box store, he would just head for the toy aisle and, Mm. he'd want to buy toys and so so the things that were cute when you're four are not cute when you're 20 they aren't they really aren't right. and uh i think that's that's the big challenge and you know linda i have to say you know sometimes i'll be you know at a movie or out to dinner or whatever and i'll see and it's usually a woman and it's usually just a mom by herself with her either young or young adult child uh, who has some form or another of, of physical disability or challenge, like either Down syndrome or CP or something. And one of the thoughts that races through my mind when I watch that, you know, first of all, you know, I have compassion for her, of course. Right. But secondly, I also think, I wonder what it must be like to worry that your disabled child may outlive you. So it's the opposite fear that you have, like who will care for them if I can't for some reason? I, I As a mom, that's what I always think about. Did, was that something that bothered you or that you thought through? Um, not so much, Betsy. Because uh, it sounds like you were more afraid of his passing young. I was more afraid of, of him not living what I consider to be a full life. And then as he got older and more and more... Uh, individuals with Down syndrome started living well into their adult years. Uh, one of the things that became apparent is that individuals with Down syndrome often develop Alzheimer's. All individuals mm. with Down syndrome tend to age earlier than, than the norm, and many of them develop Alzheimer's. And that that just terrified me because I, I didn't want Steve's strength was still his personality, and I didn't want him to lose that to a disease like Alzheimer's. I just... Uh, well, that would be a tragedy on a tragedy on a tragedy, wouldn't it? Right. And he also, he was born with a congenital heart defect. and As, as are so many. Right? right. And today, those usually can be fixed uh, pretty early on, and that wasn't the case for Steve. So as he as he continued to age, um, his heart function deteriorated as well. And you could just see him laboring more. Mm. Um, any kind of an incline would just leave him so short of breath. He would call it a heavy hill. But um, ah. so I, I almost, it sounds weird, but there were times as he aged that I thought, okay, you can go now, Steve. It would be mm. all right. Like you felt he'd, he'd lived fully and you didn't want it to get worse. I didn't. And so one of the hardest conversations I had was um, 
with his primary care physician who had known him, treated him for over 18 years. And he was in his early 40s. Um, he was having more and more issues with incontinence. Um, there was some question about, should we have him put him in adult diapers? I didn't want to do that. Um, but I did spent a long time talking with her about taking out a, a do not resuscitate order on him because mm. I just felt if something did happen, um, I didn't want him brought back to a life that would be far less than the one he had lived. Oh, I can't imagine having to make that particular choice. Well, I can imagine it. I can imagine it. And it's heartbreaking. The, the, the primary care physician was really wonderful. I mean, she sat with me, she gave me information. She said, this is not something you have to decide on today. But eventually I did decide um, to fill out a DNR. And uh, mm. that turned out to be basically the end for him. Uh, and and he passed when he was 49 years old, yep. right? And that was yep. what, 2015? Did I remember yep. that correctly? Yep. 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 So along the course of this, I, I want to come back to that in a moment, but along the course of this also, at some point, uh, this marriage that got a big ding in it <laughs> because you felt so betrayed at the time, eventually the marriage ended. And, and also you found that you were in love with women, with right. a woman and right. subsequently women. That, that's another big jump. Was that while Steve was still living? Yeah. Um, he was about 19, Mike was 17 and a half, and Josh was 15. And uh, <laughs> I mean, it was one of those, nothing I had planned on. I, I knew that I wasn't comfortable in my marriage, but I really didn't understand why I wasn't. And uh, this friend of mine was literally a friend that I had met in a uh, graduate level class I was taking and my husband was working in Albany at the time and I was still living in Hanover, New Hampshire. She had recently gone through a divorce. One night we decided to meet for dinner in a movie and uh, <laughs> somewhere in that evening, everything, the, the switch. Everything hit. shifted, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Huh. Um, and, uh, from that point on, there just really was no going back. and No uh, denying what was the truth of you. No, no, not at all. And it took several years until I found the woman that I've been with now for almost 30 years. But um, I wasn't meant to be with a man, that was for sure. Hmm. I'm wondering, looking back at, at both of those things, looking back at, at raising and sadly losing your son and looking back at, you know, the, the difficulty of ending a marriage and all those things, what do you think gets you through? What do you think you, is, was there a, a practice or a resource or an inspiration that, or, or a decision that you made about enduring those things or how do you get yourself through hard times? <laughs> Sometimes I would say it would be my intuition, um, which I also sort of see as my spiritual side. Um, sometimes 
it's just being really bullheaded. <laughs> uh, I hope with age comes a little bit less bullheadedness and more wisdom. Um, <laughs> and I think also, also just knowing that I'm not alone, uh, that there are other people like me. Uh, so meeting parents, other parents of kids who had Down syndrome or special needs, uh, meeting other women that identified as lesbians or meeting guys that identified as gay, just knowing that I wasn't the only person, that it, that I wasn't weird, that I, I wasn't. Nothing wrong with you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. As I've aged, I think I've gotten a lot more spiritual and, and um, remember to take deep breaths and <laughs> close my eyes. <laughs> well, I want to, I want to ask you one more, uh, a lighthearted question. When, when I met you at that one and only lunch where the only time we've ever seen each other in person, you gave me a little rubber bracelet, you know, those kind that, that became popular. I think they were, they started with the Lance Armstrong yep. live strong bracelets, but now they're sort of ubiquitous and they have various things on them. And you gave me a little bracelet that said, what am I chopped liver? Right. Tell me about that. Well, that was Steve's favorite saying. And um, he had a very good friend in Burlington, Vermont, where he lived. And uh, they would go out doing different errands and stuff like that. And people would always recognize Steve and say hi to him. And his friend Dave would then remark, what am I, chopped liver? And he picked <laughs> that up. And he knew exactly when to use it. And uh, he then his he also decided early on that his favorite color was pink. So after he died, um, we had these bracelets made, pink rubber bracelets that say, what am I chopped liver? You know, I have to tell you, I, I have my little pink, what am I chopped liver bracelet. And it's, it's ever since I met you and since I have that, I, I it's been a bit of a talisman for me in a way. It's been this sort of validating, like when, when I feel a little down on myself or when I'm when that old inner critic comes dancing out in my head, I look at that little bracelet. I've got it hanging on my bedside lamp. And it's like, oh, what am I, chap liver? No, I'm not chap liver. <laughs> and I found myself, and I, I, I half wonder if it's not Steve's spirit coming and visiting me and encouraging me. That's what I would like <laughs> to think. And I mean, I've worn one on my wrist ever since we got them. And mm -hmm. uh, I periodically will meet somebody that, like you, that I just intuitively know would have gotten Steve and Steve would have gotten them. And then I take the bracelet off my wrist and hand it to that person and then go back to my stand. I'm honored that you thought so. <laughs> and one last thing, of course, Linda, we're recording this right now um, in that socially distant way. You are in Vermont and I'm in California. And in addition to which you have had an accident and broke both of your legs, I understand, skiing. Yep. Is that correct? <laughs> Yikes. So you're recuperating there, and but we're also recording this in the time of the, the COVID-19 virus when we're all housebound. And, and you said something to me as we were setting up this interview that, that stuck in my head, and you said that you were sort of glad that Steve wasn't here for this. Can, yeah. can you say a bit about that and why that's the case? Well, I think that this is a this is a period of time in our in our lives where we have opportunities to ex extend ourselves uh, and and show our concern and our compassion and our kindness towards each other. 
but I'm also well aware that um, there's a disproportionate number of, of people getting the virus that are low income, that are of color. Um, those people that live on the margins, and Steve would have been one of those individuals. Because um, of his disability. Exactly. Um, and I, I'm concerned about, I mean, just the fact that the schools are closed and we know how difficult it is for a typical kid to learn this new distance learning. But think about kids that are on IEPs, individual educational programs, which all kids with special needs have. Um, how does that program mm. get delivered by social distancing? Um, suppose you have somebody with a developmental disability that gets COVID-19 and they're short on respirators. Mm. Who makes the decision about who gets one? So yeah. very selfishly, as a mother, I, I am glad that Steve isn't going through this. Um, oh, Linda, that strikes that strikes me as the least selfish thing I've ever heard anybody say. <laughs> There's nothing selfish about not wanting your kid to suffer. Well, it would have devastated him. He would have lost his part-time job at the place where he had worked for 17 years. He would have lost all the community access services that he had. He would have essentially been isolated in his home, and he would not have understood um, yeah. or he would have understood to some extent, but not, not fully. Well, it's a merciful thing that you have that attitude. And so you, you raised this boy to manhood. He became as independent and as full of life as he could be. And now after talking to his mom for a little while, I can see exactly why that's the case. Thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project today, Linda. Well, Thank you so much for having me. It just was wonderful to be able to talk with you about Steve. I'm struck in my conversation with Linda Morrow today by just her exuberant spirit. She talked about herself and called herself bullheaded, but I also think she has a, a persistent joy that's such an amazing quality. And when she looks back at the love that she shared with her son, she she seems to not forget at all the difficulties and the hardships and the worry and all of that, but that she seems to be able to put it into a perspective and a slant. I'm also touched by how she looks at everything as an opportunity to extend herself, an opportunity to be with others. And she talked about how she made it was because of other people stepping in, other people knowing that she needed help and her knowing that she's not alone. I think that's always important for us to remember that even if we feel utterly alone with something, we really seldom are. There's somebody that has either gone through what we're going through or has gone through enough that they can have empathy and build a bridge from what they know to what we know. That's true always, but especially so in this time of social distancing and separation from each other's physical presence. Even if you're in your household alone, there are resources, there are people, a telephone call away, if you're lucky enough to have a phone, a computer, any of those kinds of things that can help you connect it, you can find others who are going through what you're going through and 
There's something about that that helps lift things. That's a pretty good extra bloom. I have a double extra bloom today. I'd like to share another podcast with you. It's called Stories That Empower, and the host is Sean Farjati. He is just the loveliest human being, and his podcast is the gentlest, most soothing event of a day. I've been welcomed on there as a guest, and I have to tell you that listening to his guests always puts me in a mellower place. He he interviews a lot of writers and a lot of activists and artists and people like that. Definitely worth a listen. Check out Stories That Empower by Sean Farjati. Thanks so much today for listening to the Morning Glory Project. I hope that you'll find blessings out in your world that even in this time of social distancing that you'll find connections. Go out and bloom. <laughs>